Let's turn again to Jude, if you have your copy of God's Word. If you don't, there's one provided for you there uh, in the pew, the book of Jude. This morning, we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 16. The book of Jude, verses 14 through 16. And if you found your way there, I invite you to stand with me, please, for the reading of God's Word. The book of Jude, verses 14 through 16. Again, Jude writing, he says, It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. You can be seated this morning. It is no surprise to any of you who have been with us over the last several weeks as we have studied through this book about Jude's feelings towards false teachers. He has been crystal clear in his opposition to those who would stand up and begin to teach a gospel contrary to the one which was handed down from the saints, the one that was handed down by Jesus to the apostles and from the apostles to the disciples, from the disciples to the other leaders of the church. It is something that must be contended for in every generation. There will never be a time while we're still on this sinful earth in which Christians must not rise up to contend for the truth of the gospel. The thing that we find in our generation is the thing that has been said in countless generations when Christians stand up and begin to confront false teachers. And in its purest and in its simplest terms, you hear this response back, well, you just need to be nicer about it. How, how, how dare you judge what they're saying? Well, the Scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is writing, he says, but those who are outside, God judges. He's talking about the lost. He says, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. The scripture is very clear that if anyone who's inside the church, anyone who rises up and claims to be a part of the body of Christ and begins to teach a false gospel, it is not something that we just put off for a moment. It's not something, in fact, that we deal with in a nice way. We are very stern and strict and strong, and we deal with the matter. It must be dealt with. The man, that person, must be removed from the church. It is that dangerous. It is that consequential to the body of Christ. And this is why Jude is so strongly worded in everything that he says about these false teachers, because he understands the danger that it plays for those who are inside the body of Christ. Now, in the passage we're looking at this morning, there are two things that I want you to note in this passage. First is a warning from the past, and second is a warning for the present. Jude starts here with a reference back to that man named Enoch in the Old Testament. Notice what he says there in verse 14. He says, It was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. 
Now, we can go back to Genesis chapter 5 and understand a little bit more about who Enoch is. Now, he says here, Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam, to separate him out from the Enoch that was the uh, son of Seth, so just a couple of generations after Adam. But in, in Adam's seventh generation, the Scripture tells us that Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years and became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Now, this is the verse that perhaps we remember the most about Enoch. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. This tells us really all we need to know about this man named Enoch, that he was one who walked with God. He was one who had such a close relationship with God, such a desire to be obedient to God that he didn't actually taste death on this earth. God took him. He took him off this earth there, the Scripture tells us, because of that special place and special purpose which God had called him for. That phrase, walked with God, that we find in the Scripture means those who served God in a special purpose. It's used of Moses. It's used of other individuals in the Old Testament. So Enoch was a prophet. He was a man who had been sent by God to proclaim the truth of God's Word to God's people and to the world, in fact. Now, we don't have anywhere else in the Scripture that gives us the phrasing and the prophecy here that Jude is referring to. But we know that Enoch was a prophet because, in fact, his son Methuselah, the oldest man who ever lived, Methuselah's name meant, when he dies, it shall come. And after Methuselah died was when God sent the flood to come and to judge the world. But thankfully, by the power of the Holy Spirit speaking through Jude, we now know some of what the prophecy that Enoch spoke there in that seventh generation from Adam to the world that God was getting ready to judge by the flood. And we understand that world from reading Scripture, how evil it was, how wicked it was. And how it grieved God that he had created man as he looked down and saw all the wickedness that was in the world. And he said, I'm going to send a flood of judgment. Enoch's prophecy was, behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones, go to verse 15, to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So where is Jude getting this prophecy from? Because it's not found in any other place in the Bible. Now, there is a book of Enoch, which is not a canonical book. It's not one that's included in the canon of Scripture. In fact, it's not even an apocryphal book uh, that the Catholics include inside the uh, of their Bible between the two Testaments. But it is, in fact, a pseudepigraphal book. In fact, in the time of even Jude's writing, it was considered mostly by Jewish teachers to be a false book. There was too much in there that was uncertain, too much in there to not be considered a true document. So many of those who are critics of Scripture say, well, how can we trust this because Jude has included it in here? Now, we don't know how Jude got this prophecy. We don't know if he had learned it from verbal tradition that it had been handed down from century after century. We don't know if he actually saw this book of Enoch that had been written, but perhaps the one that we can trust the most because we know it to be true is that it was inspired by the Holy Spirit because we know that all of sacred Scripture has been inspired by the Holy Spirit. 
It was the Holy Spirit speaking through men as they wrote down exactly what he wanted them to include. So even though the book of Enoch was not a considered a reliable book, we know that Enoch was a man who walked with God. We know that he was a prophet who warned the world of coming judgment. And, a, and so we can now know and understand that what Jude has included here was an accurate saying of the preaching and the prophecy that Enoch gave to that world before the flood. It was easy for him to explain and to understand. It would have been easy for those who were listening to grasp what he was saying. Enoch was warning the world of God's coming judgment in the flood. What we discover in this is that very early on in the world, the promise of God's coming judgment was an accurate reality and something that was proclaimed to God's people. Because as we understand, as God works throughout the course of history, we oftentimes see these things and events fulfilled in the present there in the Old Testament, but many of them have a future part as well. So as Enoch here was talking about the coming judgment of the Lord there in the flood, he was also speaking of the day that God would come in glory and power to judge the wicked at that great white throne judgment after Jesus returns. And how do we know that? Because here Jude has included that prophecy, a prophecy that had already been fulfilled there in the flood. But notice what Jude says. He says it was also about these men that Enoch prophesied. So Enoch's prophecy had a dual fulfillment there in the flood, which destroyed the world, but also looking to the future, to when Jesus Christ returns and he judges those who have acted in horrendous ways, acted in those who have sinned against him, acted in those who Jude uses the word ungodly four times there in verse 15 to emphasize the wickedness of the behavior of these people. The flood that God sent to the world, the fire that fell on Sodom and Gomorrah, both of these were types and shadows of the judgment of that great day when Jesus will return. But the question is, is with such stark pictures that God has painted throughout the course of human history of the power of his judgment, do people listen? Do people look and see what God has done? God has given those warnings that his judgment is coming. And brothers and sisters, as destructive as the flood was on the world, we know that every living person outside of Noah and his family died in the flood. That judgment will pale in comparison to the judgment of Christ. We know that when fire fell on Sodom and Gomorrah, they destroyed that city so much so that nothing has ever been able to be built again on that site. But brothers and sisters, that judgment fails in comparison to the judgment of Christ. It was Puritan Thomas Manton who said, there may be atheists in the church, but there are none in hell. There are people in this world who deny the truth of the Scripture. There are people who hear of God's judgment. They hear of the promised coming of Christ. And they choose to reject it. They say they don't believe, but we will know. And we do know that one day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we know, Jude tells us, that Christ is coming. 
The word Lord that he uses there is speaking of Jesus Christ. The Lord will come with many, what? Many thousands of his holy ones. The word that's actually used there in the original language is a word that is innumerable. It, it can, it, it's supposed to symbolize the greatest number that can be conceptualized. So when Jesus Christ returns, he's not coming back by himself. He's coming with the hosts of heaven. He's coming with the angels. He's coming with the saints who have gone before. There's thousands upon thousands, myriads, some translations uses. It's an innumerable number. Can you imagine in that moment to see with all of those saints that have gone before, all the angels of heaven, here arrives the Lord in judgment. It's a powerful picture to see this army of the Lord coming. He is going to return. And this gives us as believers a confident hope. As we look out and we see the things that are happening in this world, oftentimes we can be tempted to discouragement. You turn on the news and you hear all the things that are happening. And let's be honest, we don't even have to watch the national news. We can just watch the local news and be pretty discouraged about what we see happening in the world around us. We see what's happening in the churches across our nation, and it can be easy to be discouraged, but the promise of God's judgment is one is that we know that when Christ returns, he returns to fulfill his promise to us that our sins are forgiven and we have everlasting life with him. But there's also this encouragement in knowing that in his return and in his judgment that he will bring justice to pass, that those in the world who seemingly have gotten away with their rebellion against him, those who have seemingly gotten away with misleading others, there will be no escape for them on that day. These ungodly men about who Jude writes about, these false teachers, he says that Enoch's prophecy there in the Old Testament, before the flood, he said that his prophecy was also about these men, these false teachers. They were guilty of the same types of crimes, their rebellion against God, their rejection of authority, their desire to do what they wanted to do and not do what God had commanded them to do. Judgment was coming for them. So this is a warning from the past. He says, look back to what Enoch prophesied, and the warning that he gave to his generation is the same warning that God is giving to this generation that he is going to return in vengeance and power. When Jesus came the first time, we know that he came as a humble servant. He said, I came not to be served, but to serve. He came to lay his life down as the final sacrificial lamb. But when Jesus comes again, he's not coming as a servant lamb. He's coming as the mighty warrior king, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he will accomplish everything that God has set forth for him to do. It's a warning. Jude says, look to the past and remember what God did through his judgment in the flood. Remember what God has promised that he will do in the future. And so Jude doesn't leave us guessing. He lays it out there in verse 15. He says, to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Jesus is going to return to make judgment. 
Matthew chapter 16. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then will repay every man according to his deeds. Psalm 98, 9, before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth, he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Second Thessalonians. To give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. The Lord is coming in judgment. It's interesting to me how many people today don't like to talk about this. Oftentimes you'll meet people who will try to define God in the Old Testament versus God in the New Testament. And they say, well, it's, it's different because the God in the Old Testament was a, was a vengeful God. Uh, he, was a, he was a God of, of anger and, and hostility because he, he had the Jewish people kill all of these different nations. And you see all of these things happening there in the Old Testament, but the God of the New Testament is a God of love. Brothers and sisters, God has not changed. The God of the Old Testament is the same as God of the New Testament. God demonstrated his love throughout the Old Testament just as he does throughout the New Testament. And God is demonstrating his judgment throughout the New Testament now that we live in the New Testament church just as he did throughout the Old Testament. God's judgment is coming upon the world. He is coming to repay all of those who have sinned against him. He is coming to judge all those who have rejected Christ. Notice Jude's word there. He says to execute judgment upon all. Now, we understand the differences between what happens to those who are in Christ and those who are outside of Christ in those final days. Those of us who are in Christ, we will stand before a judgment seat of Christ where we will give an account of what we have done and the things that we have done will be measured out. They will be put to the fire. And the gold and the precious things will be maintained and the wheat and the chaff will be burned off and we will receive the rewards for the things that we've done on this life and we will pass into eternity and glory with God forever. But now the wicked, they stand before the great white throne judgment. When we stand before Christ, we're not standing there based upon whether we're going to be getting in or not. We're already in. We've already received eternal life. It's just a judgment of works. But for those who stand before God at the great white throne judgment, the books of their life are going to be opened up. Every single thing is going to be laid there before the Lord God. And it's not about whether they get in or whether they don't get in. It's about how severe their judgment is going to be because they have no hope. At that moment, it's too late for them. There's no second opportunity after death to put their faith and trust in Christ. It's amazing to me how now at this point in time in history, how many people think that that's a possibility. They think that after they die, that God's going to give them a second chance. That once they die and they finally realize, oh, you, you, you are real, God. I, I, I didn't have any idea. Now I see you. Now let me put my faith and trust in you. But my friends, then it'll be far too late. 
So when Jude says he's going to come and execute this judgment upon all, the all there he's referring to is referring to all of those false teachers, all of those who are outside of Christ. And he's going to execute his judgment upon every single one of them. Their lives will be opened up before him. The one thing that we notice from Jude's teaching and from history is that false teachers are often very proud and braggadocious in their attitudes and behavior. They are not humble men. But no matter how proud and arrogant and boastful they have been throughout the course of their life, on that day when they stand before God, they will be laying flat on their face as they understand the truth of who God is. Now, there's an interesting word here that Jude uses as he talks about this judgment. He says he's coming to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds. Now, when we see that word convict, we, we tend to think of that in the situation where there's a possibility that they might be convicted or they might not be convicted. But in fact, the original language, the word means to be convinced. It's, it's talking about an abundance of evidence that somebody is presented with that they have no answer for, right? There's so much evidence about their guiltiness that they have no reply to give to what God lays before them. Their lives will be the evidence. In that moment, they will have no excuse. As human beings, when we are found doing something we shouldn't do, we often have an excuse we try to give. We see this the most commonly in our children. You tell them that they've done something wrong, and they say, yeah, yeah, but, but you know, I was just trying to do this. But adults do it the same way. Pastor Wesley will tell you that every single person that is in jail is not there because they did something wrong. They're there because somebody else did something that caused them to be there. I remember the first time I did jail ministry, I was told that by the person who was doing our training. It's like, now listen, when you go in, every single inmate you're going to talk to is going to tell you the reason why they shouldn't be there. They were either set up, somebody did something else, and they got the blame for it. There's always an excuse. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, surely not every single one will be like this. But as I sat down and I listened to the stories... Every single man I talked to that night had an excuse for why he wasn't guilty of the thing that he had been found guilty of. It's human nature. But on that day, no apology will be strong enough. No excuse will be great enough because their lives are the evidence against them. That they have rejected God, that they have rejected Christ, that they have preached a false gospel. And even if they could desire to open their mouth, the Scripture tells us that on that day, that every mouth will be stopped. Now, until that day, while they're still on this earth, they banter on and on and on, talking about all of these things, proclaiming all of these false teachings. Now, brothers and sisters, we need to remember the Scripture tells us that every single person knows that God exists. Every single person knows who God is according to the revelation that God has given to us just in nature itself, Romans tells us. But they choose to deny the existence of God. False teachers know that they are false teachers, but they continue on in their wickedness. This is why Jude emphasizes so many times here in this verse how ungodly they are. 
It seems almost redundant that four times in one verse that Jude would continue to talk about how ungodly they were. They're not just ungodly, they're ungodly and they're ungodly deeds that they've done in an ungodly way. He's emphasizing how evil and wicked these false teachers are in the things that they're doing. And we need to remember this. We need to remember this when it comes time to deal with those who teach falsehood. Is that it's not just a subtle danger to the church. He's coming to convict them. He's coming to convince them and show them, he says, of their ungodly deeds. Notice he says here, they are ungodly deeds which they have done. There is no doubt about their guilt. Despite their appearance, despite the character they try and the persona that they try to present to others, their lives are characterized by ungodly deeds. In Jude's day, the Gnostics, the Antinomians, were the ones who tried to put a front to everybody of how good they were. Their outward appearance demonstrated or, or would make one think that these were men who knew exactly what they were talking about. They carried themselves well. But despite their appearance, their lives were characterized by wickedness. It was a practice of vile deeds. We know that the Gnostics and, and the Antinomians lived lives of, of sexual immorality, lived lives of greed and, and um, desiring to take money that wasn't theirs. The word used here speaks of a willful, deliberate sin with knowledge. Now, how could someone who claims to know God, how could someone who claims to be a teacher of God do these types of things? Because as Paul tells us in Romans, they've suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. They know the truth, but they choose not to believe it. They know the truth, but the problem is, is that they have no fear of God in their lives. They have no fear of God's judgment. They have no fear of God's truth. They have no love for God. They had no love for people. They have no love for the faith, and they have no love for their fellow believers. Jude here is not just talking about someone who does something in an irreligious way, but someone who's living in a direct contradiction of God's Word. Jude here is not talking about someone who's a genuine believer who for a season stumbles into sin. Because we know there are times in a Christian's life where someone could stumble into sin, but once they realize where they are, once the Holy Spirit begins to convict them, they immediately turn back to God. Jude here is talking of individuals who, despite knowing what the Bible says, have no fear of God and not just are stumbling into sin, but are giving themselves to a wholehearted pursuit and willing embrace of sin. The Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes 12, for God will bring every act of judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. People think that it's only for the things that other people see that they will give an account for. It's only for the things that they do in public, or perhaps even the only things that they actually physically do that they will give an account for. 
But notice what Jude says. He says, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. This is not just the deeds that people do, but even the very words that we speak as well. He says that God will hold them accountable, not just for the things that they do, but even for the words that they have spoken. The Scripture goes on to tell us that we will give an account to God for every idle word spoken. What does that mean? That means that even the secret thoughts that we have in our head that God will hold us accountable for. Now, why does God do that? Well, let's be honest this morning, brothers and sisters. We are oftentimes far more evil and wicked in our thoughts than we are in our actions. There is the judgment of the world that holds people at bay. Statistically, not a lot of people are murderers in the physical sense. But statistically, a lot of people are murderers in the thoughtful sense. They would kill their neighbor. They would kill their brother. They would kill their friend if it weren't for the fact that they were afraid of getting caught and going to jail. But the evil in their heart reigns supreme, and if they could get away with it, they would do it. And that is why the Scripture tells us that God holds us accountable even for the secret thoughts that we think. But these false teachers were saying things. They were speaking boldlessly and shamelessly against God. They were speaking against the gospel. They were speaking against His church and His messengers and His people. They had no shame in the things that they were saying. It did not matter to them that they were teaching things contrary to the Word of God because, again, they had no fear of God in their hearts. We look around at teachers today, so-called religious experts, so-called Bible scholars who deny the virgin birth of Christ who deny the atoning work of Christ on the cross. They deny the literal creation of God in creating the world. They call Christianity a crutch for weak-minded people. They have no fear of God. And they continue to wax worse and worse. Psalm chapter 94 tells us they pour forth words. They speak arrogantly. All who do wickedness vaunt themselves. We need to understand that God issues a great warning to those who would do evil and speak evil of Christ. It was Jesus who said what we spoke of earlier, but I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an account for it in the day of judgment. James tells us, so speak and so act as those to who are be judged by the law of liberty. But these false teachers had no fear of God, no fear of hell, no fear of judgment. So despite their appearance, they committed ungodly deeds. And despite their claims to be legitimate followers of God, they spoke harsh words against Christ, spoke harsh words against the gospel. So that is a warning from the past as Jude paints out how God is coming in judgment against these ungodly men, the same way that he came in judgment against the world and the flood. But now Jude gives a warning for the present. Look at verse 16. In verse 16, Jude now really 
opens up to give some of these crystal clear characteristics of these false teachers. He, he, he does a pinpoint focus on the behaviors that they are doing inside the church so it would be more easily recognizable by those who are writer, readers of this letter. Here's what John Phillips had to say. He said, they like to disguise themselves and to hide behind an outward show of orthodoxy. They like to be called moderates and not liberals. They regard themselves as progressives and not apostates. Jude keeps on hunting them down, pulling off their masks, and exposing them for what they are, end quote. False teachers are so subtle, conniving, misleading, deceptive in the way that they do what they do. Changes of terminology are very common among false teachers. This is what Phillips was pointing out. He says they don't want to be called liberal, they want to be called moderate. They don't want to be called progressive, they want to be called progressive and not apostate. I was reminded as I studied this this week of what W.A. Criswell, pastor of First Baptist Dallas, said. In 1988, he was speaking at the Southern Baptist Convention. It was the height of the conservative resurgence uh, when some of these men rose up to try to rescue the Southern Baptist Convention away from liberalism. And he preached a message at the Southern Baptist Convention that year called the curse of liberalism. And in the opening words of his message, he said much the same thing that Philip says here. He says, today they want to be called moderates. Today they want to be called progressives. But a skunk by any other name still stinks. And it's true. And this is why we have to be so attentive to what's happening in the world around us, because terminologies change all the time. And they change those terminologies in an effort to infiltrate deeper into the church. And they claim all of these things about their background and their education and, and their philosophy and their different perspectives. And brothers and sisters, there's nothing wrong with education. We should seek, whether we do it through, a, through schooling or through personal study, we should always be seeking to grow in our knowledge of the Scripture and our knowledge of who Christ is. But oftentimes people use this level of education as a way to supersede themselves and say, well, I have this degree, which means that I know more than you, and you should listen to me as I tell you how God has changed his perspective on this issue. There is no new revelation of God. There is no new perspective of the Scriptures. What we have has been given to us and has been handed down from generation to generation to generation, and we can trust it. We can trust its authority. We can trust its infallibility. But notice what Jude says about these men. He says, first off, that they are grumblers. He says they are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts. Grumbling means that they are discontent with the life that they have. The word used actually in the original language sounds like the sound that someone would make if they were grumbling. It's the idea of kind of muttering under your own breath. It was the word used all throughout the Old Testament of the nation of Israel as Moses was leading them across the wilderness and they would begin to grumble and mumble and complain about what God was doing about Moses' leadership. Over and over again, they people mumbled against Moses. They mumbled against God. It's the sound of resentfulness from a rebellious people. These false teachers were unhappy 
with the plans and purposes and provisions of God. They were unhappy with the men around them and the things that they were doing. They always wanted to grumble and complain. John Gill said they would complain against God. They would complain against the being of God, denying or at least wishing there was no God and uneasy because there was one. They would grumble against God's providence. Psalm chapter 73, David reminds us of a moment in his life. He says, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. They grumbled against the providence of God. They said, well, we see what God is doing, but we don't like it. We don't like God's plans and purposes. They would grumble against the law of God. We don't like to be held to these rules. We don't like to be held to this expectation of holiness. We don't like that there's a Christian life that must be lived out, that must bear fruit, that must demonstrate its truthfulness in the way that we live. They would grumble against God's decree. Remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 9, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Brothers and sisters, we have no right to question God's decree. We have no right to look at God and say, why did you do this? Why did you allow this to happen? Why did you cause this thing to happen? I mean, we have no right. They were not just grumbling against God, but these false teachers were grumbling against the authorities, the, the, the civil leaders in their time. They didn't like being under held under rule. Now, we know that God has given the civil authorities for a purpose. It's the reason why we are called to, unless we are being commanded to sin, we are called to respect those in authority over us. God has put every political leader currently in position in the world today has been placed there under the authority and the providence of God, whether we like them or not. And the scripture says that God has given those authorities, one, their job is to celebrate those who do good and to punish the wicked. Now, it doesn't always happen that way. But God has also said that he has put those leaders in place, and we understand that God gives good leaders to a people to bless them, and he gives bad leaders to a people to punish them. So when we see those things happening around us, the question that we need to ask is, when we have bad leaders, it's not, well, let's just vote them out the next time. The question should be, is like, what is God trying to teach us in this moment? What is God trying to relay to us through the subjection to the authority of wicked and evil leaders. But these false teachers didn't want to submit to anyone, whether they were good leaders or bad leaders. They didn't want to submit to the ministers of the church and the leaders of the church. They didn't want to submit to their neighbors. They grumbled against every single thing that happened in their life. And brothers and sisters, here we must caution ourselves was the question that naturally would come up from this understanding is, is then, well, when things happen in our life that we don't like, how then do we pray and not be guilty of grumbling before God? Again, I'll refer to you to, to Puritan Thomas Manton. He says, humble complaints are not murmuring or else there would be no room for prayer. But bold exultations are grumbling when they complain of God rather than to God. 
Manton points out to us the difference between prayer about an issue and grumbling against God is that we are addressing prayers to God about a situation rather than talking to others or even grumbling in our own heart about God. There are going to be times in our life where things happen that we don't understand. We're going to face sickness, discouragement, job loss, death. And the natural inclination of our heart is to be uncertain about why God is allowing that to happen. And the scripture here is not saying that we can't go to God and say, God, I need to know why this is happening. I need you to help me walk through this moment. Can you teach me something about this? That is completely permissible according to scripture. What is being forbidden here is to have a grumbling attitude where we say, well, I don't like what God is doing here. I, you know, God is just being, you know, why is this, all of this happening to me? I, we, we live in a time where we probably see this more fleshed out than we ever have because of social media. Now, sometimes on social media, you'll see people get on there and they'll say, you know, I have a prayer request, you know, would you please pray for God's help in this situation? But then oftentimes you see people get on there and they say, well, I don't know what I've done wrong. Here are all these things that are happening to me. And it's, in a sense, a grumble against God, not a prayer to God. They're angry not because they don't understand. They're angry because they feel like that they deserve something better. And really, brothers and sisters, that's at the heart of the matter. When we get angry with God about the things that we face, it's not because that we are just hurting in that situation. It's because we think we deserve better. But we live in a sinful world. What we deserve, we don't want. Because what we deserve is the punishment of God in eternity and hell forever. I remember hearing one preacher say that if all God did for us was just provide for us salvation, and he did nothing else, he never gave us the blessing of the Holy Spirit, he never gave us the things that we have in this life, his favor and his goodness and his love and his peace and his joy, just the fact that he gave us salvation would be enough for us to worship him for the rest of eternity. So we must adjust our hearts not to be people of grumbling, but to be people of contentment and prayer. But the false teachers here did not know that. All they did in their entirety of their life was to grumble and moan and complain against God, his providence, his purposes, his will, and his way. Closely connected to that, Jude says that they found fault. Not only did they grumble, but they complained about everything about their life. The fault-finding person is never happy. They're always complaining about life. And what I mean by never happy is it doesn't matter what happens to them. It doesn't matter what happens to them is horrible. They lose their job, they're going to find fault in it. Or they get a job promotion. And they say, well, you know, I, I, I think I should have gotten a better promotion. I think they should have given me more money. I think they should have given me this different position instead of that one. It doesn't matter what happens. They're always finding a problem with it. You probably know someone like this. Who, No matter how good or bad the situation in life is, they always can find a problem with it. These false teachers were grumbling over and over, finding fault with every single thing. God has given to us our life in his providence. And to grumble and to find fault in everything that God does is to insult God's purposes. It's to blaspheme God. 
Because we're saying that what God does or has done or is doing is not good enough or it's wrong or it's miscalculated. Brothers and sisters, the joy of the Christian life is knowing that whatever happens to us, be it good or bad by the world's standard, that whatever happens to us comes to us through the hand of a God who loves us. It comes through his providence. And that even in the moments of our greatest difficulties, that God will carry us through. There is nothing that will happen to you or I as a child of God that God will not give us the strength that we need to carry us through. The scripture says that he causes what? All things to work for good. I was sharing with someone last week. That is a promise that's only to Christians. Lost people don't have that promise. But the scripture says that he causes all things to work for good. What? To those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That is a promise that God has given to you and I as children of God alone. That all things will work out for good for us in our life. If we trust and follow him. Now notice it says here, not only did they grumble, not only did they find fault in every situation, he says, but they followed after their own lusts. They were disobeying not only the laws of man, but the laws of God to pursue the full-fledged lust of their heart. Their life was totally governed by the sinful desires of the flesh. These false teachers knew nothing of self-control, nothing of discipline. Two of the key characteristics of the Christian life is the idea of self-control. Paul talks about dying daily. He talks about buffeting his body. He talks about the necessity of the Christian to discipline ourselves to the Christian life. We don't just become a Christian and then just act perfectly. The sin of this world is constantly berating us to follow after it. And we must make the decision every day to discipline and exhibit self-control in order not to follow the ways of this world. But these false teachers had neither of those things. And in fact, they denied the necessity and the demand to obey the law of God. Remember, the Gnostics said, only the spiritual is important, but the physical body, there are no consequences, so do whatever you want, and God doesn't care. Matthew Henry said, those who please their sinful appetites are most prone to yield to their ungodly passions. We have to be so careful. We can have a desire to be obedient to God. We can have a desire to exhibit self-controlled and discipline. But those things which we feed in our life will be the things that guide us the most. Those areas of our life which we feed will be what control us. He said they followed after their own lusts. This is in comparison to, as Christians, how we were. Remember what Paul says in Titus? He says, For also once we were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another, but now no longer. Now that's not who we are. And one of the clearest demonstrations that these men were false teachers was that they were living their life enslaved to the lust of this world instead of demonstrating that they've been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. But he goes on. Following after their own lust, he says, they speak arrogantly, flattering people 
for the sake of gaining an advantage. These false teachers were brazen in their speech, braggadocious. Talk was their normal way of conversation. Talking about how great they were, how noble they were, how wise they were, how smart they were, and how everybody else was beneath them. Just yesterday, I watched a video of T.D. Jakes. He's a pastor down in Texas, preaches the heresy of the prosperity gospel in many different ways. And in this service, he was, as he put it, transferring the mantle of anointing from him to his daughter as she was going to be taking over the church there. The thing that struck me as I watched this video was throughout, and I, I didn't watch the entire, I, I had to skip, I couldn't, I couldn't stomach most of it. But what you heard over and over again was about how great he was and about how great his daughter was. But you didn't hear very much about Jesus. You didn't hear very much about God. You didn't very, hear very much about the gospel. And in fact, at one point, he turned to the audience that was gathered there in the church, and he says, wasn't I the one who had the anointing? Wasn't I the one who did all of these things? And it made me think so directly of what Jude is warning against here. Arrogant speech. Because these false teachers are doing everything that they do, not for the glory of God, but for the glory of themselves. They're drawing all the attention to themselves so that they can gain more power, more authority, more control. And what's interesting about the way that Jude closes this, he says they speak arrogantly. So these are not humble men. But notice what he says there in the latter part of that verse. He says, flattering people for the sake of gaining advantage. The only time when these false teachers would exhibit any type of humility was when they would flatter others in order to gain more control, power, money, and influence. What Jude is telling us is that these false teachers will tell people what they want to hear. And what did Paul warn Timothy of in 2 Timothy chapter 4? He said, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And brothers and sisters, we see this happening around us. There's no shortage of, quote, ministers who will tell people exactly what they want to hear in order to build a following. There's no shortage of false teachers who will tell people things that are completely contrary to the Scripture and the clear teaching of the Bible because they are building a following and because they know that people want to hear it. They're motivated only by self, motivated only by greed. Jude here gives a clear warning for the church, for Christians, and for us. I remind you once again, as I have almost every single week, that this letter written to the church, there in verse 3, he says, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. That word you is not just the pastors of this church, not just the leadership of this church, but the entirety of this church. 
This is a job for all of us as believers to contend for the faith. Now listen, we're, we're not starting a heresy hunting police association. We're not going out to do that. But the scripture is telling us that we must be keenly aware of what's happening around us. And that we must be willing to sacrifice whatever is necessary in order to protect the gospel. We must be willing to sacrifice our reputation. We must be willing to sacrifice our, our perceived niceness. We must be willing to sacrifice, brothers and sisters, even if it is necessary, to sacrifice our own life for the clarity and the teaching of the gospel. Because it's that important. A false gospel cannot save. And if the church does not stand up for the truth of the gospel, and the only gospel that is out there is a false gospel, then this world has no hope. So God has entrusted us with this plan and purpose that we would contend for the faith. And thankfully, what a, what a beautiful thing it is that even in the severity of judgment that God is laying out here for those false teachers, that he has given us this clear understanding of what these false teachers look like so that we can recognize it, so that we can be on the watch for those who would teach contrary to the Scripture. As we close this morning, I would encourage you to read ahead. There's only just a few remaining verses here in this book. But starting next week, now Jude is going to give us really the response that we have to be as Christians as we contend for the faith. He's laid out all this work to demonstrate who these false teachers are, how we're to watch for them, how we're to recognize them, how dangerous they are. And now he's going to bring it all back together so that we know what we are called to do. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. And Lord, we, we pray, God, we, we look around our, our lives, we look around the world, and we see, Father, how even in our day, a couple of thousand years removed from when Jude was writing, how Satan has not stopped in his efforts to corrupt the gospel. Lord, may we be never tempted to think that what we read about here in the New Testament was just in the past and that Satan is no longer doing this. Lord, we understand and realize that he is attempting to corrupt the gospel in every facet that he can while he still has time. And Lord, help us to understand each and every day the importance of the clarity and the truth of the gospel. And that it is a necessity for us to contend for it, to fight for it, to stand for it, to proclaim it and to teach it and to share it in everything that we do. Because in the truth of the gospel lies the hope of Christ. The promise of sin forgiven. The blessing of eternal life. Lord, help us as we stand to guard our lives to guard our families, to guard our church against those who would teach contrary to the Scriptures. We pray, God, that as time moves forward that we would see the true and faithful and clear gospel growing in power 
and in its reach. We would see the darkness being pushed back as we seek to be obedient to you. And we ask all these things in Christ's name.